He loved life. Solomon, that is. It seemed life loved him too. As a child, his zest for living knew no end. He'd run into his daddy's palace covered in dirt. His dad would put his hand on his head and shake. A cloud of dust ensue. What you been doing, boy? God made me for the dirt, dad. And I like to make things in the dirt. He couldn't quite express it then, but he felt God's pleasure when the dirt ran through his fingers and became lodged in his fingernails. The dirt was made for me, Dad. He teemed with potential as a boy. He possessed the heart of his father, King David. He, like his dad, loved the God of Israel, Yahweh. In fact, when he was old enough to take over for his father, his first and only request from the Lord was wisdom to rule as well as his dad had. And at least early on, that was exactly what he did. When Solomon became king, he was given the opportunity of a lifetime. He could ask for anything he wished. And Solomon chose wisely. God was very pleased that he didn't ask for money or long life or power. That he just asked for wisdom to govern his people. And so the Lord gave him all of that. Money, long life, power, and wisdom. His reign was a real success. The nation flourished. It reached its zenith under Solomon. He rebuilt the temple, God's house. It was the most beautiful building you've ever seen. Not one of those buildings where you walk into and say, Wow, what a beautiful building. But one where you walk into and say, Wow. What a beautiful God. There was a theology of architecture. It screamed, God is holy. And you are not. When Solomon dedicated the temple, knowing God's presence would dwell in that building, he prayed. He prayed these words. Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less the house that I have built. That same plot of land used to be Solomon's construction site as a young boy. Now it's his finished construction site as a mature man. He bends down and scoops up a handful of dirt and lets it drain through his fingers. He looks at God's house and he, he prays to God. He says, I felt your pleasure when I built your temple in this dirt. Solomon just had the it factor. You can't explain it, but everything he touched turned to gold and everything he said was always right. In fact, the queen of another nation, Sheba, dropped by with her royal entourage just to meet Solomon and to bask in his greatness. She said to the king in, in 1 Kings, she said, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. Solomon 
ran his race well. At least for a while. He began to marry a lot of strange heathen women. Many of them through political alliances. It was a common practice of the day. Shouldn't have been for him. In the latter years, these wives turned his heart away from the God that he knew. And the God that he had grown up with. Somewhere along the journey, the journey, Solomon lost the heart of his father David. He no longer had his father's heart or his father's eyes. He began to see things differently. His perception changed. He looked at marriages differently. He looked at alliances differently. He looked at life differently. He looked at dirt differently. Your heart can be slowly turned away in the midst of God's blessing. Solomon actually built more temples, this time for other gods. Solomon spent several years of his life wealthy, powerful, and admired. So it gave him the ability to chase down any and everything in life to see if there was life apart from God to be found on the earth. We don't know how many years he spent doing that. But we know what he found. It's written in this book. This is his journal. These are the notes he took. The conclusions that he made. The decisions he came to. This week, my oldest boy, Weston. Weston and I built a replica of the first moon landing. And it was, it was, it was really neat. We had little astronauts, a little American flag, a little command module. I would show you a picture of it, but it's certainly not one of Solomon's construction sites. You don't view it and go, wow, God is holy. You view it and go, wow, Kyle is artistically challenged. Yeah. 51 years ago, Apollo 11 took off. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walked where no man had walked before. The moon. You remember the famous line delivered, this is one small step for man and one great leap for mankind. Most of you know of Neil Armstrong, but few likely know of Buzz Aldrin. When the two came back from the moon, they went on a whirlwind media tour. They visited 23 countries in 45 days. They spoke for hours about the, the unique view that the moon offered of the earth like a magnificent blue marble hanging on nothing. It left a huge impression on both of them. But Buzz Aldrin especially, it changed the way that he perceived life. There was such beauty and grandeur about that big blue ball. It gave him a new appreciation for life. After he returned to earth, however, the longer Buzz stayed on earth, the more exhausted and disappointed he became. From the moon, the earth radiated with such peace and tranquility. But on earth, it radiated with corruption and injustice. The distant view was mesmerizing. The near view was demoralizing. It rocked Buzz. It wouldn't be long before he had a nervous breakdown. After making the moon his goal for life and finally arriving there, everything he saw when he came back was unfulfilling to him. His view had changed from up there to down here. 
He entered into a deep depression. Some days not even bothering to get out of bed. He began drinking. He became a raging alcoholic. Even arrested for drunken disorderly conduct. He went through one wife and then another and then another and many wives. And to this day, Buzz is still disillusioned with earth. Two and a half hours of being on the moon left him with a decade of depression. It was almost like he was trying to fill space left by space. He struggled. In that same kind of vein, Solomon is a sort of a spiritual astronaut. He's been detailing for two chapters the similar disillusionment with earth. He can't find contentment anywhere. He talks about how empty it is under heaven or under the sun, which is his little catchphrase. Every once in a while, like in this morning's text, Solomon stands up, breathes through his nose, looks around and goes, God is good. He goes back to his early years, to when he had a relationship with God. So he surfaces, and then unfortunately he slips right back down into the emptiness. It's almost like two different men. If you read it quickly and, and don't stop to consider, like he's schizophrenic or bipolar. He says in verse 11, God makes all things beautiful. And then 10 verses later in verse 21, he says, I'm not even sure that man has a soul and is any different than an animal. Can someone who believes in God even utter these words? He says one thing and then quickly says the opposite. But, but he's not two different people. It's just the reality of going through life knowing the truth, but living error. Take your copy of Solomon's journal. Turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 16 and you will see why he is so disillusioned with earth. Uh, here's how I'm going to break down the text. I'm going to show you three ways you can grow disillusioned with earth and then give you Jesus' answer to each of those things that make you disillusioned. In other words, we are going to see how this Old Testament text points to Christ. We're not simply doing an exposition of Ecclesiastes, we are doing a Christ-centered exposition of Ecclesiastes. And the first truth I'd like you to see from the text is this. The injustice you see can make you disillusioned with the earth. The injustice you see can make you disillusioned with the earth. Solomon says it like this in verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Now, the syntax of this sentence is abrupt in the Hebrew. Most English translations try to smooth it out. But what's, what's happening is the outrage outpaces the ability to articulate. The place of judgment, injustice there. The place of righteousness, injustice there. Solomon, like Buzz Aldrin, is driven to despair, to disappointment, viewing the injustice on earth. And Solomon zeroes in on two specific places of injustice on that big blue marble. The first is the halls of government. Now, if, 
If anywhere in the world one would expect justice, it would be in the court of justice. Solomon settled many cases himself. He used his God-given wisdom uh, to always judge rightly. Apparently now he's looking at some lower courts and he's seeing a judge on the criminal's payroll, a lawyer misrepresenting the facts, a witness lying under oath, a member of the jury being bought off, an innocent person framed, a guilty person going free. And justice is happening right under his nose, in his kingdom, in his palace, in his courtrooms. And he's longing for a perfect judge. One who will come and judge all things rightly. One who will not be fooled or bought off. But Solomon's heart will go on longing because there is no such judge. What do we do when we have a yearning for something that doesn't exist? We create it. Thirteen years before the birth of Christ, the Roman emperor established a female goddess as a symbol of divine justice. In the Western world, a court of law can often be identified by a sculpture of this woman holding a set of scales. The woman is called Lady Justice. She is typically sculptured with three distinct features. First, she's blindfolded, representing impartiality. No matter who you are or where you come from, she is blind to anything but the truth. Secondly, she holds in one hand a set of balanced scales to indicate that she is going to weigh all the evidence fairly and evenly. And then thirdly, in the other hand is a sword, which represents the fact that she will deliver a verdict and justice will be swift and final. Isn't it wild that before Lady Justice even existed in the imagination of man, Solomon was longing for her. Solomon sounds like the biblical prophets Amos and Jeremiah who were always crying out for justice. First, there's injustice in the halls of government. Secondly, notice in the halls of religious organizations. The place of righteousness. Now, that would have been none other than the temple of God built by Solomon. So the court of law and the house of God were both filled with injustice. Some of you have seen religious hucksters performing injustice. It still makes you question religious institutions, especially churches. And notice that Solomon is not writing about something he heard from officials in the palace. He's not writing about something he read in the Jerusalem News and Observer. No, Solomon says, let me tell you about what I actually saw. I was an eyewitness to this stuff. You can't believe what I saw with my own eyes. Although Solomon, like Buzz, does not tell us what the injustices are, he definitely saw specific instances of gross unfairness under the sun. Why do you have a heart ache for justice? One author put it, Our longing for justice is hardwired into the way we think and feel. We have a God-created desire for justice. And it starts during childhood. That's not fair. But why can't you? 
Why can't you and Solomon and Buzz Aldrin just accept that sad things happen? Why can't you just accept sad endings? Samson's final defeat of the Philistines cost him his life. Romeo and Juliet die without their love unfulfilled. All the king's horses and all the king's men fail to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Not all stories work out the way we choose. But we learn to live, we learn to live with tinges of sadness. But we fight it, don't we? When you hear a news report of someone who did something wrong and then justice was served, something in your heart and mind says, that is great. That's the way it should be. There's just something wrenching and jarring to us to see the wicked get away with things. Someone who gets away with a crime because he can afford the right defense team. A political figure who is untouchable because he or she is so well connected. It just eats at us. Solomon continues in verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them. That they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Why is God allowing the injustice to happen? Solomon concludes, he's allowing it to show us all that we are nothing but wild, uncontrollable beasts. Animals. And we've seen modern examples of this animal-like behavior. Hitler's Holocaust in Europe. Saddam Hussein's gassing of his own people in Asia. The current rebellions promoting raping and killing in Africa and South America. Solomon continues in verse 19, For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all from the dust, all are from the dust, and to the dust all return. According to Solomon, your sin brings a reversal of creation. Out of the dust we came, and to the dust we shall return. But you need to take note of verse 17. It's one of those moments where Solomon snaps out of his despair. Where he resurfaces out of his disillusionment with earth and he speaks truth. He says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. Is there one who runs a righteous courtroom? Who sits enthroned on a throne of righteousness? who truly holds the scales of justice in his hands, who, is, who has a sword and he will deliver a swift verdict and it will be final. It turns out that Lady Justice wasn't who Solomon longed for. And it wasn't who Buzz Aldred longed for either. They both longed for another. Our longing for a righteous judge to come and put things right is a longing for Jesus Christ, for God in human flesh, specifically in the Godhead, the person of Jesus Christ. Our confidence does not rest in the justice system, but in the chief justice himself, Jesus Christ. Are you currently bent out of shape about something that you think was unjust? You know it was unfair, and it'll never make it to a courtroom. Maybe it's something going on with your employer 
Maybe it's something going on politically. Maybe it's something going on with you personally. Dear church, don't you dare live like your hope rests in earthly courtrooms. Your hope rests in one courtroom in the heavenlies. And he'll judge rightly. You can rest in that fact. Now before I move on to the second point, I want to give a quick word now to Christians and then non-Christians. Christians first. Guard your moral outrage. Guard your moral outrage. It can become your center, what defines you, what gives you meaning. Your fight, your fight for injustice shouldn't define you. The God of justice should define you. You have the answer for all injustice. It's called the gospel. And don't be a hypocrite. Don't be a hypocrite like Solomon. I, I, I want justice when someone steals my identity. But I want mercy when I'm pulled over for speeding. <laughs> Solomon over here crying about injustice. Who's the most powerful man alive at this moment? Solomon. Who can bring any man to justice at any time he pleases? Solomon. Don't just speak on it, Solomon. Live it. You remember what the Queen of Sheba said to you, right? Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Solomon, there, Solomon there's injustice in the courtroom. But there's also injustice going on in your bedroom. Christian, you will be disillusioned with earth if you keep looking at human courtrooms. You better get your eyes on a heavenly one. Now, for those of you that are non-Christians, I want to tell you this pointedly. You can't escape this righteous judge. You can't escape the judgment of God that's coming your way if you're not a Christian. You can't. Paul Harvey told a story about a man named Gary Tyndall who was charged with robbery. While standing in the California courtroom of Judge Rodriguez, is he related to you guys? No. Rodriguez just got baptized this morning. While standing in the California courtroom of Judge Rodriguez, Tyndall asked permission to go to the bathroom. The judge agreed, and Tyndall was escorted upstairs to the bathroom on the second floor while the bathroom door was guarded on the outside. And Tyndall was determined to escape. He climbed up some exterior plumbing and opened a panel in the ceiling and started crawling through the space. He crawled for some 30 feet when the ceiling panels broke under his weight and he dropped to the floor right inside the courtroom he had just left. For a moment, it appeared he was going to escape. But then suddenly, he was just a short crawl away from the judge. I don't know what you have escaped in this life. I don't know what you will escape. But you're only a short crawl away from being before the throne of God. And non-Christians, you don't want to stand before this judge without Christ's blood applied to your soul. Repent and run to Jesus Christ for salvation. The injustice you see can make you disillusioned with earth. Secondly, the oppression you witness can make you disillusioned with earth. Solomon's on a bit of a journey. First he walks to the court of law. Then he walks to the house of God. Now in verse 1, he's walking to the back alleys and the dark basements. Verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppression 
all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one, no one to comfort them. This is a very somber text. These are weeping victims in the iron grip of their oppressors. Oppression is awful. Genocide, killing the unborn, sex trafficking, terrorist attacks, sexual abuse, child abuse, physical abuse. When I say Solomon moves to the back alleys and to the dark basements, I'm saying he's going to places that are hell on earth. While you're sitting in your cushioned seats this morning, there are victims out there who are living, who are in a living hell. Buzz Aldrin saw it. That's why he wants to leave earth and go back 240,000 miles to the moon. Solomon saw it. That's why he's a basket case in the text. He says in verse 2, And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. It's better to be dead than alive. Like Jonah and Elijah, the oppressed cry, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Solomon longed for someone to comfort the oppressed and to dry their tears. We live in Psalm 73 where the believer is tempted towards skepticism because of the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous. You know crimes that were never reported because they thought no one would believe them. Or they were intimidated into staying quiet. Two times Solomon says they have no one to comfort them. By implication we are to comfort them. How do we God's people comfort the oppressed? One, listen to them. Cry with them. Mourn with them. Fight for them. Secondly, some of you I don't think are... Some of you, I don't know if you're going to like this. You comfort them by teaching the reality of hell. God will bring every sin to light, free the captive, and bind the captors forever in hell. Jesus said at the end of the age, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will collect out of his kingdom all evildoers and they will throw them into hell where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. By the way, hell doesn't belong to Satan. I know that's what... One of, the, one of the holidays says. Halloween. No, hell doesn't belong to Satan. It belongs to Christ. There is a hell which men kindle in back alleys and basements. And there is a hell which God kindles. Without hell, justice would never overtake the unrepentant tyrants responsible for murdering millions. Perpetrators of evil throughout the ages would get away with murder and rape and torture and every evil. Hell exists precisely because God has committed himself to solving the problem of evil. Hell is not evil. It's a place where evil gets punished. Hell is morally good because a good God must punish evil. To fear and dread hell is understandable. But to argue against it is to argue against justice. In the Bible, Jesus spoke more about hell than anyone else. Jesus referred to hell as a real place. Described it in graphic terms. 
Some of you Christians have been victims of horrible oppressors. And you should take heart. There's coming a day when the ultimate comforter will wipe away your tears and dry them full, finally, and forever. And he will throw the unrepentant oppressors in hell forever. The injustice you see on earth can make you disillusioned with earth. The oppression you witness can make you disillusioned with earth. Thirdly, the envy you experience can make you disillusioned with earth. Solomon experiences disillusionment with earth. If you're not familiar with that phrase, disappointment. Expecting something and it didn't deliver. Solomon is, is experiencing disappointment after visiting first the court of law, then the house of God, then the back alleys and dark basements. And now finally he experiences disillusionment with the workplace. Your workplace. Cubicles and medical offices and factories and farmlands and homeschool tables. It says in verse 4, Then I saw all toil and all skill and work come from man's envy. Now I want you to let that hit. I saw all the toil and all the skill and work. These are beautiful things come from man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after win. Solomon pointed out the competitive urge. Solomon paints the picture of someone trying to pass everyone else at his or her job, and it's all motivated by envy and competition, rivalry. Is too much of your hard work mixed with a craving to outshine? Or not be outshone? Is envy the engine that drives your work ethic? Why do you work the way you do? Why do you work with such skill? Is it because it brings glory to God? Or is it because you want to outdo others? But Tony Marita said, when you envy someone, you do one of three things. You'll fantasize about them, demonize them, or compete with them. You'll fantasize about them. You will overstate their greatness, and you'll begin to idolize them, wanting to live their Instagram life. Or you'll demonize them. Envy can turn wicked. You can end up hating the person you envy. You criticize them, you attack them, you gossip about them. Or you could compete with them. You won't to beat them, and then you want to rub it in their face. If it is impossible to rejoice at their success, then you have a problem. You're living an envy-driven life and not a Christ-driven life. When you see someone working skillfully and faithfully and they're rewarded for it, you should rejoice in their success and learn from them. Rivalry will not produce sanctification in your life. It will not. There are three ways to work, and the first one's found in verse 5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. All right, check this out. Folded hands, that shows that you, doesn't want to, you don't want to work. This is actually a grotesque imagery of self-cannibalism. Solomon's being sarcastic, using hyperbole hyperbole, intended exaggeration. 
this man refuses to work so he has nothing to eat because he's a lazy bum. He refuses to work, he has nothing to eat, so he simply eats his own flesh. You've heard workaholics warn that on their deathbed they will wish they had spent less time in the office. Well, the lazy are warned that they will have wished they spent at least some time in the office. Verse 6, better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil. Now, picture three people here. First guy, folded hands. Lazy worker. Second guy, two hands full. This is an aggressive worker looking for work to supply what only Jesus can. Purpose, fulfillment, happiness. And then the third guy, notice what the text says. This guy, he has one handful of quietness. Quietness is a word that serves as a synonym for contentment. Working his job with contentment. You got the lazy guy. You got the guy who's looking for work to give him meaning in life. And then you've got a guy working his job with contentment. Buzz Aldrin lost contentment and pleasure in doing his job. He became disillusioned with NASA. He still speaks negatively about them. Solomon no longer felt pleasure the pleasure of God in his work. It was like that for a time, but those days are gone. Let me just give you some practical applications here on how not to become disillusioned with your job. First, do your job for the glory of God. For the glory of God. You will never lose purpose when you're doing it as an act of worship. Do your job well. Not because you love your job, but because you love your God. You work hard, not to outdo someone else, but because you've received this glorious gospel. And this glorious gospel affects every minute of how you work at your job. Martin Luther, the reformer, he said, The Christian shoemaker does his duty. Now, how does a Christian shoemaker does his duty? Well, he, he advertises, I'm a Christian and I sell shoes. And if you're a Christian, you should come to my shop. Right? No. Martin Luther said, the Christian shoemaker does his duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes. Because God is interested in good craftsmanship. God's interested in good painting and good medical care and good office work and good homeschooling and good parenting and good soldiering. Do your job for the glory of God. Secondly, wherever you work, Whoever you work for, you ultimately work for the Lord. Wherever you work, whoever you work for, you ultimately work for the Lord. He's your boss. There is a fundamental connection between who you think your boss is and how you act at work. Now you realize work was not a result of sin, right? Adam and Eve were working long before sin infiltrated the human race. The curse was not work. The curse was that work would be difficult. It could become a burden. It could become disillusioning. For some, work is a curse. Folded arms. For some, work is a god. Grab a two handfuls. Run to it to give them fulfillment and joy. What about Jesus? 
He worked. He didn't start his public ministry until he was 30. Jesus did not fold his hands as a sluggard, but he worked. Nor did he grab his job with two hands. He didn't hug it and look for contentment in it. No. One man pointed out that the words worship and work share a common root word in the Greek. Those two are forever connected. Our jobs and our worship of God. You worship God by faithfully and energetically serving at your job. Here's one more thing that could help. Look at your job as a mission field. Look at your job as a mission field. It's hard. It's really difficult to become disillusioned with a place when you see God's hand placing you there. It's really difficult to become disillusioned with a place when you see God's hand placing you there. Placing you in that cubicle, in that bank, on that tractor, in that unit, in your living room with those children. You're deployed at your job as an agent of the gospel. Instead of eating lunch alone, intentionally eat lunch with other co-workers. Learn their story. Unpack the gospel to them. Evangelism is doing normal life with gospel intentionality. Put Christ on the table. What I mean by that is not a little figurine. All right. Put Christ on the table. When co-workers ask you, hey, what would you do over the weekend? Don't say, I watched, I watched the ball game. Don't say, I, I went to corporate worship. And then allow that to... Put Christ on the table. Allow that to lead to gospel conversations. Let's just review. When you're disillusioned because of injustice, remember, Jesus will come to execute justice. When you are disillusioned because of oppression, remember, Jesus reigns over hell and will cast oppressors there. When you're disillusioned at work because of envy, Remember to work your job for the glory of God alone. Now I'm going to close. I'm going to take 20 more seconds and I'll be finished. But you need these 20 seconds. He hated life. Solomon, that is. As a boy, Solomon bent down and played with the dirt as God's good gift to him. As an older man, he bent down and played with dirt, thinking it would bring him ultimate satisfaction. What do we preach to ourselves when we are saying, I hate life? Well, that's simple. The cure for being disillusioned with earth is being infatuated with Christ. The cure for being disillusioned with earth is being infatuated with Christ. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.